You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Turn in your copy of God's Word to John 5, 19. John chapter 5, verses 19 to 29 will be our, uh, uh, the focus of our attention this morning as we pick up where we left off in John 5 last week, where Jesus went to that pool and then the temple as he healed the uh, invalid and taught then the, the people there. And, you know, most people go to the pool to swim, but Jesus went to the pool to work. He went there to teach And for now, as the passage continues in John 5, we enter really into Jesus' classroom. And now many of us likely have a favorite teacher, don't we? We have fond memories of an elementary school teacher or junior high or, you know, God bless our junior high teachers, uh, right? Maybe a high school teacher or a Bible teacher along the way. Someone, you know, as you were a kid or along the way, those teachers that God has used in our life. Man, praise God for them. But here we come to the greatest teacher of all, to Christ. And we step into his classroom in this uh, passage of scripture. For this really in John's gospel is the first lengthy teaching portion that we have have, have come across uh, here in, in continuation of what he was doing at the pool so far. What we've seen in the first four chapters is John, Jesus' teaching, rather, has been mostly through discussions with his disciples in chapter one, and then with Nicodemus in chapter three, and so the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, or just the simple, profound, miracle-working statements that he makes at the wedding in Cana, and to the royal official's son, or with the royal official to heal his son, and then again at the pool. But in today's text, it is only Jesus who is doing the talking. There is no discussion. There is no other details. It is just we have entered into Jesus' classroom. We are the students. He is the teacher. When Jesus is teaching, what do we do? We listen, we take notes, we submit ourselves to it. So let me just read our text for us today. Grab your Bibles, follow along. John 5, 19 to 29, here it is for us. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of God of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, 
and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, this is God's word for God's people. The context to this uh, classroom teaching here in the preceding passage, you'll remember that the, the Jewish people are beside themselves. They're, they're, they're freaking out over two things, what Jesus did and what he said. They're beside themselves because Jesus has healed an invalid, a lame man on the Sabbath and over what he said because he instructed this man then to break their Sabbath rules and not to sin anymore and as himself claimed to be equal with God, claiming that God was his father. And therefore now in this passage, you're trying to like figure out who in the world this Jesus is. Why is he saying these things? Why is he doing these things? From where does he get his authority? And what we learn from the text that we just uh, read here today is this really like central truth about Christ. Jesus, he knew who he was and what authority he had. Go ahead and write that down in your notes. Write it here. What we take away, kind of the big picture of what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus knew exactly who he was and what authority he had. Jesus wasn't like going through his life trying to figure it out as he aged, right? As he getting older, like discovering like, who, who am I? Or, you know, or was he just like making it up as he, as, as he went? And nor was it just like some secret that his parents were keeping from him all of his life, like the jewels of an era in the wing feather saga. Clearly from this text, we see Jesus knew who he was and what authority he had. And see, it's in this, this section here that we just read. It's, there's actually a larger section. I'll continue on in, into the section next week here. But hopefully you noticed as I was reading it, three uh, uh, statements that were repeated, or one statement that was repeated three times. Do you see that there? Do you observe it or hear it re- uh, in, in your ears as I was reading? Truly, truly, I say to you. Did you catch that? And so those statements really indicate the three portions for us here. And this this phrase is one that just John uses in his gospel. It's unique to him, and it denotes really some significance, some importance in what Jesus is is going to say. It's literally just, amen, amen, like, listen up, y'all. Listen up. He is saying, I am saying, Jesus is saying something important here. And now that's not to say if you know, Jesus' teaching or his words aren't preceded by this phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, should we just kind of like brush it off like, eh, Jesus is talking, I can listen if I want to or not. No, it's not to say that his things or what he says is unimportant unless, but it is to draw our attention here. And so that forms the basis of our text here and these things that we learn about who Jesus is and how we then are to act. Remember the big theme that John is writing, the reason why he is revealed in John uh, chapter 20, 30 and 31 is that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life in his name. And so there's something here as he is teaching that we are to believe about him and then do in light of that in order to have life. And so here's the first one from this first section. Because Jesus is equal with the Father, we're to honor him as God. Because Jesus is equal with the Father, we're to honor him as God. Write that down in in, in your text. It's that first section that Jesus is teaching. Remember, as they are coming out of this temple and they're beside themselves, he is laying this truth before them. Now come to the text here in verse 19. Really all we have other than what Jesus says is, So Jesus said to them... Who is the then that Jesus is speaking to, church? Should we do like a multiple choice? Was he speaking to John the Baptist? Was he speaking to his disciples? If you remember from the context, they're likely not even there. Not sure where they are, but they're not mentioned, so probably not. 
Is he speaking to the Jewish people in the temple who are mad about his Sabbath breaking and his healing of the invalid? Yeah. Likely it is them that he is, is making these claims to. And this is important for us, right? And I was just like trying to add a test because it's early, you know, it's Sunday. Or like trying to like, no, I'm not trying to like pop quiz you or anything. But it's details like these in the text that are so important for us as we're trying to make sense of who Jesus is talking to and why he is laying these things out. It's likely these Jews who are mad at him. And he begins to make some claims about himself and what this means and how he is equal with God. Like in verse 19 here, he just makes two. Uh, really kind of large claims. He says, the son can do nothing of his own accord. And was just kind of laying there. He said, he is united and equal with the father. He's not some like runaway God trying to get out from under his daddy's rule. Right? He is equal. And, as, and, and so what the father does, then so he as the son does also. Not in like some monkey see, monkey do type Im- imitation, but of talking about how they work in tandem together. There is no hidden agenda. There is no uh, a separate will between the father and the son. But whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Why? Well, verse 20 lays that out. It's out of love. A perfect affection or love that exists between them. The father loves the son. Now, just interesting. Now, this isn't what maybe the Greek word you would expect in an agape, unconditional type love. It's actually phileo love a brotherly love, an affection for one another that is deep uh, for one another. But there's also not just this perfect love, but a perfect transparency as well. A father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Again, there's no hidden will. There's no hidden deeds. There's nothing uh, separate. There is no, like, the son showing up uh, after a long days of work and the father saying, hey, what did you do today, son? For they work in tandem together, showing each other and working what they are doing together. And so what is it that they do in tandem? Verse 21 tells us what they do in tandem. They raise the dead and give life. As equals, as the son and the father co-equals before the Lord, they raise the dead and they give life. We know it's from the official son, right? As we saw in in chapter 4, and a spoil alert, as we get to chapter 11, guess what? Lazarus is raised up from the dead, and they judge humanity. Verse 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son. Though their activity and involvement may differ here, they do so in tandem, uh, but with distinction. Right? The, the equality doesn't necessarily just mean uniformity, that they're just simple carbon copies of one another. But here what Jesus is laying out for us is this biblical concept that I think we have to grasp because it is all over the scripture. And we'll see it all throughout God's creation, this biblical concept of equal yet distinct. Equal but distinct. Write that down in your, in your notes so you can get this phrase. Uh, the biblical concept of equal but distinct that exists within the Godhead and also within humanity. Now I see some of you all, you're like, man, did we come to a, a, a theology lecture this morning? I guess so. Jesus is teaching here. This is what he's laying out for us. And so as we come to the next text, guess what we have to do? We have to reckon with the theology that Jesus is teaching about himself. The father and son are equal in who they are, but distinct in their activity. And we could also include the Holy Spirit in here as another member of the Trinity or the triunity, but it's outside the scope here. What Jesus is teaching us is his unity, his equality and unity with the father that is also distinct. And so let's make sure we have to have these categories uh, in, in our minds. They are equal in essence. 
In other words, the Father and Son are both God, and they both possess all divine attributes. Holiness, grace, mercy, all the attributes that we know and love about God. Their omnipotence and omniscience and, 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 and all the, the, that, the, uh, that the scriptures teach on. They're, they're the same. They possess all of them. They're also equal in power. Both the Father and the Son possess all divine abilities. And though we recognize and acknowledge, as Philippians 2 would teach us here, Jesus in his humanity has limited, has voluntarily limited some of these abilities in his humanity during his time on the earth. But they are equal in essence, equal in power, and third, equal in dominion. In other words, they possess all defined authority. All of it is under their rule and authority, and this equality does not mean exactly the same. They're also distinct in how and what they do in the role that they play. Not one less than or more than. And it's mentioned here specifically in verse 22. The example that is given to us is how that uh, regards judgment and the the discerning of right and wrong and the final judgment that will happen and who goes to heaven and who goes to hell and how all that takes place. But don't read and don't make the mistake in verse 22 of thinking that the Father is just like somehow passive or uninvolved in the judging of right and wrong and the judging of humanity, right? It's not as though the father's like, you know what? That's a job that I don't want to do. So son, you got it, right? Like somehow, you know, in some families, the parents give the chores to the kids that the parents don't want to do, right? They're like, uh, you're going to clean the toilets because I don't want to. That's not how it works in your house, is it? No. It's not in ours either, Gemma. So... Don't, don't make that mistake here. See, the Father sets the standards. The Son carries them out. The Spirit works the conviction, and not one uh, in the Trinity is less than or more than the other. Rather, there is a beautiful unity and complementarity that exists within the Godhead as they are equal yet distinct, possessing all the divine attributes and authority and, uh, and activity and ability and yet different in how it plays out. And it's really a mind-blowing concept as we think of this, and and it should cause us to worship God uh, with our minds as we try to tease out how all of this uh, works and exists within the Godhead, but then also in how we see the principle play out, this equality but distinction in, in God's creation. Like just thinking how he created male and female in his image. A beautiful complementarity, a beautiful uh, uh, equality, even in the distinction and how we uh, are biologically and how we uh, exist together in God's beautiful design in his creation. A picture of the beautiful uh, unity and complementarity within the Trinity, especially seen even in marriage. As a man and a woman come together through a husband's joyful sacrifice and a wife's joyful uh, responsiveness to her husband, a beautiful unity and equality yet with distinction between the two, played out in his creation, played out in his church. Uh, this equality, this equality with distinction in, the, in and how he has designed God's beautiful uh, body to exist uh, together as we function with a unity and a beauty together as elders and leaders joyfully sacrifice for the members and the members joyfully responding to the elders and leaders' uh, direction and care for them. 
but also even into a plurality, how God has designed the church to be led amongst a plurality of pastors or elders here where the lead pastor is joyfully sacrificing for the rest of the plurality and the plurality coming on joyfully responding to the leadership and care and shepherding of the lead pastor. And so all of this, this biblical concept of equality with distinction played out in God's design for his creation that flows out of the very essence of who God is. It's a beautiful thing as we like zoom down into it. But now let's zoom back out for just a moment back in the text here. As we see, like, this is like, hey, like, like what is our response then to be to this equality with distinction? What should, what should we say to these things that Jesus is teaching about who he is and his equality with God and his work as God? Well, we know how the Jews felt about it, right? Verse 18. Like in the passage right before this, how do they feel about it? That all warm and fuzzy, right? This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. They wanted to kill him for it. They couldn't understand it. But Jesus tells us how we are to respond to these things. Look at verse 20. Or to marvel at his work, to be in awe. He says, and greater works will these than these will he show him so that you may marvel. And we think what we've seen in John so far is mind-blowing. It leaves us in, in awe, right? Like, the, the, like he healed the invalid. He, he, he brought an official son back from the brink of death. And at that, that leaves like our mouths agape and awe. Like, oh my goodness, and yet better things, greater things in the gospel of John. Like we should anticipate chapter after chapter, section after section, because church John only gets better than this. Like it becomes more amazing. Greater things are yet to come. And that should cause us to marvel. And secondly, it should cause us to honor the son as God. That's what he gets at in, in, in verse 23, right? He's this distinction, even in their judgment and how that plays out in their equality. He says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever doesn't do that does not actually honor the Father, right? And church, in our day, it is so easy to lose our sense of reverence for Christ. You know, the prevailing winds of our day are, you know, that Jesus is my boyfriend, makes me feel good about myself, and he brings me flowers and tells me how beautiful I am. You know, or a difference in like me and Jesus, we're homies, right? We have an understanding, right? We're on the same page. Yes, to honor him is to love him. Yes, let us not diminish the love of God towards us and, and all of that. But we cannot forget to love him and by honoring him. To honor him is to love him and to love him so much that we flee from our sin. That, that, that so much we tremble at his word and we, we, we tremble at any thought of rejecting any, uh, uh, any of his words that, and, and, and that we know we can't reject or we must reject any notion outside his word and humble ourselves under it. Humbling ourselves under his authority, under his salvation, under his work for us. For his salvation is really what he has come to do. And this is really what he gets at in the second truly, truly statement in verse 24. Do you see it there? This is what he is teaching. He knew why he come. He knew what authority he had. He had an authority to save. And so write this down. Because Jesus is sent from the Father, believe he is your Savior. 
because Jesus is sent from the Father. Believe he is your Savior. Look what he's saying. He's like, listen up. I'm telling you, whoever hears my word, right, like what, listening to what Jesus has said about himself and what he's here to do and believes him who sent me, right, the Father has sent him. He has sent a rescuer. He has sent a gift. Whoever believes him has sent me has eternal life and is freed from, right, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Church, somebody give Jesus praise for that, right? Right, the rescuer has come. We were dead, drowning in the water, flailing about with no hope on the horizon when the Coast Guard sent a a, a helicopter announcing, I am here, I have been sent to save you. The Father sent the Son to to rescue us, and we recognize it and embrace it. He told us with his words what he came to do. He's told us all along why he was here. As we've walked our way through John, we've seen his words, we've seen his teaching to Nicodemus. God's saving purposes. We've seen his teaching to the Samaritan woman of how needful we are of Christ. We can do nothing to save ourselves. What did Jesus tell us himself in John 3.16, the most famous verse in probably the whole Bible? For God so loved the world that he what? He sent, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. So we do all kinds of things to extend our life or to uh, increase the quality of our life. Foods that we eat, the things that we drink, the foods that we don't eat, the things that we don't drink, the exercise that we do, or the activities that we don't do, the, all the things that we do to try to extend our life or increase the quality of our life. And yet Jesus is telling us something here. Truly, truly, I say to you, I have something better, eternal life. Life forever with uh, God. Life forever free from sin, free from sorrow, free from guilt. A life in heaven, in the glory that exists around God the Father and the Son. Avoiding the judgment that awaits our sin. Being raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. Why? Because Christ bore the judgment that was due to us. Christ bore the wrath of God. Christ lived the sinless life in our place. God sent him, the Father sent him to save us, to do what we were unable to do. And so we believe this. Do we believe this? Do we believe today, church, do you believe that Christ is your Savior? That the Father sent him to save you from your sin. That it was your sin that hung him on the cross. Massive difference. Just believing, oh, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Yeah, he died for sin. No, he, he died for my sin. He is my Savior. You believe that today? If you do, look at your neighbor and tell him. Look him straight in the eyes. Tell him, Jesus was sent to save me. Jesus was sent to save me from my sin. To really save us from the sin and the judgment that is yet to come. For see, there's a final piece here. 
that Jesus knows about himself. He knows what he's teaching. He knows what authority he has, and he's teaching us here in these, this final section in 25 through 29. So you note this, write this down, because Jesus is the Son of Man. That's the truth to believe about him. Because Jesus is the Son of Man, here's how we have life in his name. We anticipate our resurrection. Because Jesus is the Son of Man, anticipate your resurrection. And now this section here, this truly, truly, you know, what Jesus is saying here probably needs some explaining, right? Maybe needs some explaining. Like, what, what is he getting at in this section? What is, he, what is he teaching us to anticipate? Well, note here just the kind of the flow of thought, right? Let's just summarize it for a second. He's made the case, Jesus is God. We got that? Okay, got it. Jesus is God. Here's the second thing. God has authority. You got that? As God, as the creator of the universe, as the sovereign one, he has authority over everything. Your life, my life, all the affairs of the world. He has an authority. And we should get it. Maybe we don't like it, right? You know, an authority in our day is, is akin to like a curse word, right? We, we, we don't like listening to people. We don't like submitting. Since the Garden of Eden, humanity has never gotten overly excited about submitting to any sort of leadership or somebody telling us what to do, right? Our very nation was, was, was founded on this principle, right? We buck against authority often, and yet as people of the book, we know that godly authority is for our good. God's word, his authority over us is for our good. If you don't believe me, you wonder like, no, we can do it. We're fine on our own. Just go read the book of Judges uh, uh, this week, and you will see what happens. It is a long example of the, of the grace of God but also the, 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 the degradation that happens when God's word and godly leaders are absent and rejected on the nation. It gets, it, the degradation just gets progressively worse as you read. It gets more and more bizarre until you get to the end and, and, and people are being chopped up and sent around the nation. Like, what in the world is happening? And then it ends and there was no king in their, uh, in their eyes and everybody was doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. See, godly authority is for our good. God's word has authority in our life. It's from him. God also has an authority over life and death. Right? Jesus is God. God has authority. God has authority over life and death. And these first few verses here in 25 and 26 speak of a authority over spiritual life and spiritual death. Look what he says. An hour is coming. Right? That's a key phrase also in John when he's talking about an hour is coming, but it's now here. When the dead, the spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live, will be raised to life, will be saved from their sin, out of the spiritual deadness of the things of God, and made alive in Christ Jesus. And that's what's in the Father, the ability to give spiritual life. And this is an authority and a power given to the Son now to wield. And so they say, see, as the Father has life in himself, this spiritual life, he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Okay, so what, don't make this mistake here. What, understand what Jesus is saying. It's not, he's saying this is now a power, authority over spiritual life and death that's given to him to yield. He's not saying here that God has like given him life like he was created. Many have made that mistake, and there's many heresies that abound out there thinking things like this, including like Jehovah's Witnesses, that Jesus was a created person. Right? They stopped at my house yesterday. <laughs> it's out pulling weeds. Come by. Yeah. It's not what he's saying here. 
He has the authority, the power to give this spiritual life. And he can do it because he is God, because he is the Son of Man. That's what he's saying here. He's given authority to execute this judgment because he is the Son of Man. Something that Jesus called himself, if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 51, as he's speaking to the disciples there, specifically Nathaniel, he's like, and you'll see greater things as the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He has acknowledged it there, and now he is saying, here, he has this authority as the Son of Man. And maybe you're like, what is this even about? Okay, the Son of Man. What is he referring to here? A very profound Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah found in Daniel chapter 7. I want you to turn there because I want you to see this here. We don't make it to the prophets often, but it's good for us. Daniel chapter 7. If you're unfamiliar with your, with your Bible, you'll find it kind of like two-thirds of the way through it. If you turn to the middle, you'll find Psalms, and then Daniel's part of what we know as the, the major prophets, only major because they're bigger than the smaller minor prophets. And so you have, uh, you'll find Isaiah, and then uh, Jeremiah, and Lamentations, a guy named Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's a prophet to Israel as they were exiles, as they had been uh, booted out of the Holy Land, as we talked about a few weeks ago. And he's prophesying in Daniel chapter 7. Pick it up in verse 9. Okay, it says, Daniel sees this. He has a vision from the Lord. And he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. He's referring to the Father here. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head like pure wool, designating his holiness. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And so here you have him, and he's seated here, and a multitude are all around him, right? And jump down to verse uh, 13 here. Not that the others are important, but I want you to see the point. He says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Do you see it now? Okay, the son of man, this person in like human form. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Right? Now church, get grasp what Jesus is saying here. I am the son of man. I'm not saying that. Jesus is saying that to the Jews, right? I am the one who has been given this dominion, this authority over this kingdom. I, I'm the one who will not be usurped. Nobody can, can, can overthrow my government. Kingdoms come and go. Governments come and go. Jesus is saying, I have a dominion over it all. I am this son of man that the father, that the ancient of days has given this level of authority. And if we think that the Jewish people of that day were aghast and incredulous that Jesus had broken their Sabbath rules and healing the guy last week at this claim, no wonder they're ready to stone him. Because this is the Messiah, the anointed one that they're waiting. And now Jesus has shown up on the scene and humbly telling them, I am this man. I have this authority. I have this dominion over your spiritual life to make you alive, and, and, and also I have this authority over your life, authority to save those who believe and authority to send those who reject me to hell. 
But this isn't just some mere abstract spiritual reality, but a physical one as well. Come back to, to John 5. Turn back over there. Because look what, he, look what he says, the Son of Man. But he tells us in verse 28, do not marvel at this. Like, what? <laughs> don't be surprised that this Old Testament fulfillment, that I have this authority to save people, the authority to do all this. But he's saying, he's like, don't just marvel at this, not because it's unimportant or, or uncool or anything, but he points them to something greater. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, church, we should really marvel at the bodily resurrection that is yet to come. When we finally and forever shed these earthy, decaying, corrupted tents for glorified, uncorrupted ones. In those moments when you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, I feel it, you know? And then I, Aaron and I are trying to be cool. We made a tent out in the library in our house and trying to sleep out on the hard floor with our kids. And, oh, man. When you get that diagnosis, things, you know, when your body is starting to fail, man, because Jesus died and defeated death and rose again, we too have that anticipation. There's what we're going to celebrate on Easter, two weeks from today. We're going to worship God with fervor because of it. But the only question is like, a resurrection awaits us, a bodily resurrection, something awaits us. But the question for us remains is, which one do we anticipate? The resurrection of life? the resurrection of judgment. Two distinct moments, two distinct resurrections that yet await us, and this is what we're to marvel at. This is what, we're to, what is to sober us. This is what we are to honor the Lord in. And the question remains for us, was which one do we anticipate? We know He is the Son of Man. He is the one with the authority over all kingdoms and dominions. There's everything, both the, the spiritual realm and the physical realm, is in His dominion. The question remains, which one which resurrection do we anticipate? We're like, I don't know. I don't know. What is it talking about? Let's just do a little. The Bible talks about gives us snippets along the way. God opens the window into the future, just a crack along the way in his revelation so we can kind of get glimpses and get a picture of it. But turn over to 1 Thessalonians 4 for a moment to see the resurrection of life. We get a picture. The Apostle Paul Gives us one to the church in Thessalonica here. Just turn to your right a little bit. First Thessalonians is in your New Testament. And John and Acts. And then Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First Thessalonians, right? I get that right? Yeah? Okay. First Thessalonians 4. I have my note. Ay, ay, ay. Here it is. 1 Thessalonians 4. Pick it up in verse 15. He says this, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What's that? Fallen asleep. It's a euphemism for death. Yeah, for death. Not those who are like sleeping in church, you know, or just lollygagging through life or whatever. Right? 
but uh, 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 just a different way to say those who won't precede those. For the Lord himself, get this, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. See, there is a moment when Christ will return for his children. Those who are left, those who are dead, they'll be caught up, bodies uh, resurrected, all the old tents, everything gone, now new, uh, resurrected, glorified bodies in their uh, you know, pre-fall condition before the Lord, caught up together with the Lord. And this is a massive encouragement to us, is it not, church? Avoiding the judgment that is to come for our sin to meet God in the air. An encouragement, a soul galvanizing uh, truth, a reality that we await in those moments when life is hard. When our body is, is failing, that there is always a silver lining. Even if our life, our physical life escapes us here, we will forever be alive with the Lord. It's our hope. This is because he's the son of man with the authority to do this and to come back for us, to give us this great hope and resurrection in the Lord. But apart from Christ, we don't have this encouragement. Apart from the saving work of Christ, of believing that he is who he says he is, that he has the authority as the son of man, that he is the savior as the son of God, something vastly different awaits. The resurrection of judgment. Like, well, what's this? What is this all about? Go over to Revelation 20. Revelation is your last book in the Bible. Just keep turning to the end. Find the last few pages and turn over. Revelation 20, verse 11, commonly known as the great white throne judgment, something that is yet to come. It says this, Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them, right? It's all taken away. Nowhere to hide. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now when we stop and think about what we've just read, this is horrific. And yet the just consequence for rejecting Christ God in his holiness, who hates sin, who hates evil. This is the resurrection of judgment. This is what awaits, and it's horrifying. Worse than any horror film, any of those things that make us squeamish or jump out of our seats, any of the horrors of Halloween or anything like that, do not compare to what this describes. 
And so Jesus is here. Jesus is teaching the Jewish people there at the temple, those who are incredulous about his, his uh, healing on the Sabbath and of breaking their rules and of changing the holiness game as they think. He is offering, he's teaching them, saying, I have an authority to come and save. I am offering you something greater to avoid this judgment. And the question remains, which resurrection do you anticipate? You know, today can be a day where all that changes. And you're like, maybe I don't know. I don't know. I never thought about it. Never thought about it in these terms. Well, as we place our faith in Christ, as we turn from our sin, as we embrace Him as the Son of God, as equal with the Father, as we embrace Him as the Son of Man with authority over our life, trusting that His death was in our place. then we await with great encouragement, with great hope, that Christ will return and take us to himself. And see, this is what Jesus is teaching here, and this, this like conflict that's happening in, in John chapter 5, right? Jesus never wastes any moment, he especially doesn't waste a good conflict, right? He makes them into teachable moments. He's teaching us about himself, who he is, and what authority he has, authority to judge, authority to save. This he, he, he knew. He knew exactly what he had come to do. The question is, do we believe and will we have life in his name? Would you join me? Let's pray for a moment. Talk to the Lord about this and then worship him for it. God in heaven, here we are. Here we are as your people in your classroom Embracing these uh, teachings that uh, you have uh, uh, sought to preserve in your word and trying to make sense of them, trying to, uh, uh, to understand them, and, and uh, trying to live in light of them. And Lord, will you do uh, uh, several things now? For those walking in you today, would you give great encouragement about this, the resurrection of life? Would you give great encouragement about what is to, what is to come? And even in the difficulties of life, even in what we're, the, the things that we're going through, even the best things in life still don't compare to the glory that is yet to be revealed. And Lord, for those that are far from you, would you bring them near even now? Would you do the work that only you can do? Will you blow the wind of your spirit that regeneration may happen and that you would bring those to life that they would repent and believe even now? And that each of us, that each of us would lift our voice, uh, ascribing to you the glory due your name, honoring you as God, giving you what rightfully belongs to you, even in our feeble attempts. So God, help us to that end. Help us to that end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.